I always say like lead with the why, not the way. And one thing I've noticed is that those like internal change agents who want to uplevel their career and uplevel their orgs, they often just cite all the techniques and tools you should use instead of saying, look, in three to five years, we're going to have a really tough time hitting any of our projections and margins unless we can figure out how to deal with this new persona. And product and design thinking have a really good set of tools to grapple with a new persona and translate that better experiences. Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we have John Cutler with us, who is a product evangelist at Amplitude, a prolific writer. You write more than anybody I've ever seen, which is fantastic <laughs> to share all your knowledge with us, and a good friend of mine for the past couple of years. So welcome to the show, John. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Melissa. This is great. It's good that you got the podcast going. So now at least when people tell you you should have a podcast, you can be like, I, I'm doing it right there. So this is awesome. Just- some anticipating needs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a good product manager. So let's talk about uh, what you've been doing for the last uh, couple of years. So you've been at Amplitude as a product evangelist, and you were just telling me you were doing workshops with all these teams. Why does Amplitude even have a product evangelist? What do you do? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, product evangelists, different companies use that phrase. And in some cases, it's more like developer relations or sort of you know, subject matter relations. So they really need a public face of the company who can connect with their personas or, you know, the people who use the product in unique ways. So the way you would think about that is that maybe in a developer relations situation, like when I was at Zendesk, suddenly these people started to show up from Amazon to teach us things. And we're like, great, this is awesome. Turned out that they wanted to sell us more stuff, but they were really helpful people to have around as we were making some transitions to stuff in the cloud. So that was an example. But in Amplitude, it's an interesting thing because we cover, have so much surface area as a company. So you could think, well, it's analytics. So you need analytics literacy, but you kind of need product literacy as well. So you think like just having analytics chops alone is not enough. You kind of need to know the domain you're working in. So that's the product stuff. Now, if the teams aren't empowered to make any decisions, well, it doesn't matter whether you have analytics and product literacy, you're not empowered to make any decisions. So you got to think about that. And so I think that the role, you know, for companies like Amplitude that are in an emerging space that has like layers of complexity and different personas, and it's sort of not just accepting the status quo, but it's also meeting these teams trying to quote unquote transform or do anything. It helps to have a product evangelist there because you sort of fill this gap in this need for education, advocacy, helping teams kind of see the future direction that they're going. And then honestly, just product therapy. A lot of my week is like 30 minute product therapy sessions with product leaders. (laughs) So everyone needs another set of ears I've learned. So that's why Amplitude's doing it. It's a great adventure for me just to be able to chat with so many teams. It's really exciting. Yeah. And you, you've worked with teams now that are literally all over the world doing these different workshops. Like, what have you seen in the last year as like some of the biggest product problems out there? 
oh, well, what's funny is they think that I'm some clairvoyant genius. But when you've seen them, a lot of teams, I'll crack jokes like, yeah, I bet that's kind of when the developer doesn't want to show up at the discovery session and you find out that they need to finish a project to get promoted. And everyone will say, well, how did you know that? And then I'll crack a joke like, well, that's promotion-driven development. So if you follow me on Twitter, you can sort of see like my mental <laughs> journey across these because like you start to see these particular patterns or you just learn how hard it is. I mean, in a lot of these large enterprises, it's not for lack of skill. You're on this call and there's just so much thoughtful change agency. You know, you've got coaches, they've got OKR coaches and they've got product thinking coaches and they've got agile coaches. And there's so many people trying to help and you can just sense like the inertia in the organization, like it's still stuck. So you start to sense those patterns despite people's best efforts. It might be difficult for them to do that, but yeah, we could talk about patterns, but I think the funniest thing I I'm thinking about is the patterns become so clear. And often I get credit for being able to like, how do you know that that happens in our organization? And I'm saying, well, every company treats OKRs like a running of the bulls situation and every quarter is 90 days and 61 business days. And I bet you've spent the last 10 days freaking out about next quarter's OKRs. So I'll be right. Like most of the time saying stuff like that. So yeah, you see the patterns among organizations. I think that there's Joshua Arnold, who I follow on Twitter a lot, and I met him a couple of times, and I think he lives in New Zealand, has this great quote about the reverse Anna Karenina principle. So in Anna Karenina, they're just like the happy families are the same, and the dysfunctional families are all different. And so his thing is the reverse Anna Karenina principle, where like the dysfunctional companies, and I don't even like the word dysfunctional, but challenged in some ways or another, tend to have a lot of common patterns. What's really curious about the workshops is just how different the successful companies are in their approaches. People tend to think, oh, well, they follow all these principles, but they can be vastly different in terms of culture and stuff. So as a huge like nerd of all this stuff, doing all the workshops is just an amazing experience for me to meet all the teams. Yeah. I find the same thing. Like I, <laughs> when I've worked with different companies and it's really across industry too, I find that- yeah. We've both talked about this together a bunch, but everybody thinks they're their own special snowflake and all of their problems is unique to them. And I found that that is definitely not the case. And especially a lot of companies trying to transform or trying to move into more of a product-led approach. But you're right, like all the successful companies are operating kind of differently. Like they have the core values, but the way they actually do product, I find is completely different. Yeah. I mean, in a 48 hour period, I might be with one company that actually has pretty rigid role definition on product teams. Engineering manager farms out stuff for developers. Product doesn't get involved in X. There's a lot of strong, you know, directly responsible person culture and it works at that company. And then, you know, the next call will be highly collectivist. Everyone is Often, if it's in a Northern European country too, it's like collectivists in an interesting way. Collectivists, but not afraid to say what you mean. So a lot of the Northern countries are like that, but they're functioning in the same way too. And so you even start to notice the difference in communication styles between teams. I mean, some like South American countries and even in APAC the other day, like 20 young, super hungry, super passionate product people they're taking and they're like sponges of all this information. And 
I couldn't end the call. You know, I kept saying like, hey, I kind of like to wrap it up right now. And everyone's so passionate about that. And actually a lot of open communication. And then you do walk into some teams where it's like crickets and you can tell, you know, what's going on. But yeah, back to the kind of healthy teams, like taking all these particular formats to do that. I think the other thing too, is the element of even at Amplitude, we have some of the teams that write all the blog posts people point to and say, well, that's amazing product. And when you do workshops with those teams, I mean, it's hard everywhere. Product is really hard. And in fact, the more outcome oriented or impact oriented you are, it gets actually really hard. (laughs) You know, like you have to ask all these hard questions. And so there's definitely like a myth versus reality situation that you see. But yeah, it is fascinating to see teams that are struggling in in different, everyone's struggling. It's just in slightly different ways (laughs) to do it. It's an interesting thing. We can see all these patterns in, the companies, let's say they're not there yet, right? They're not successful when they're doing product. And then we've got all these different ways of working for the successful companies. Have you observed anything that makes a (laughs) pattern, right? In the successful companies about what they do? Yeah. I get asked that a lot, especially Amplitude, like anyone, I'll have someone from marketing say, yeah, you got to make a maturity model, John, or something, you know, what are the patterns to see that? You know what some of the patterns are often have to do with where the business is at and how old the business is and what kind of part of the cycle of their existence as a company is at. And we don't talk enough about that, but like if you are a digital product first company and that's all you've ever known and you printed money off of that for a long time, there's a reason why someone like Atlassian spends 35% on R&D and 15% on sales and marketing versus the top financial institutions are investing 10% in quote unquote IT and then e-com, you know, large retailers trying to work online around six or 8%, right? And so I think that one pattern you notice is the business model and where they're at is a super important component of where they are. And transformation is hard. If you have a large organization optimized to make money one way, spend money one way, invest money one way, and that pivoting that needs to happen is really different. So I know that that might not be what you're looking for, but these are the things I observe that, you know, how important that particular thing is. I think that the other thing too, is that there's a virtuous loop where often they have just enough people in the company who've done it, maybe who've seen these irrational things. I had a great conversation this morning with a product leader. Like if you've been in a company and made $2 million in 48 hours or seen an eight month effort go completely wrong and know why it went wrong, not just that it went wrong or have a sense of why it went wrong. Or if you've worked on a team that was given a three quarter mission and just pretty much left alone and just really knocked it out of the park. So what happens, you notice in these organizations that are a little further along on this is they've created a virtuous loop where someone there has done it. And then that creates a little bit of boundary for people to lean into doing that. And then the outcomes create a virtuous cycle where the impact is there, the situational awareness is there, that impacts the product strategy, which then gives the teams agency and moves around. One thing I've noticed a lot is that people take you or Marty Kagan or other people or or me on occasion, they take our words really seriously. (laughs) And so one thing I've noticed is it's one thing to say, you just need to empower the team. But if you go into an organization that's saddled under tons of technical debt, where the org structure isn't really aligned in a way to allow agency, 
where there's low confidence among the teams, a lot of dependencies between the teams, and maybe they don't have analytics or a way to be able to see if what they're doing is working. And then layer on the fact that the incentives are structured around the old business model, no amount of empowerment will help. In fact, you know, I was on with a large Northern European company. Everyone in the room wanted so desperately to empower, right? But <laughs> the reality was that they needed to work through the structural system level things that were getting in the way of doing it. So to back to your question, one of the patterns is through some virtuous loop, they have situational awareness, the incentives are aligned, the funding of efforts is aligned with how the business makes money, there's a product strategy, the org structure is aligned around the strategy, there's not as many dependencies, which allows agency, optionality, focus, flow, better decisions. You can see that I've gone so deep into this that I have this like causal relationship diagram in my head, but those are the patterns that I pick up. I can actually share a link of that particular diagram I just talked about, and you could share it in the notes of the podcast. But yeah, these are the patterns I pick up on. And it is not a linear journey by any means. And it's not something you can just will into existence. It's like, this is tough. It's really hard. (laughs) Yeah. Everything that you just mentioned too, I've seen, especially the blockers. Like, I think things that made me feel so helpless in uh, helping digital transformations, like big companies that wanted to do this, is just seeing so many people really excited to use the stuff they were learning and then just getting completely kicked by bureaucracy to not be able to put them in place. And it was just slightly heartbreaking. But one thing that you did mention that I want to call out, because I think this is an interesting thread to go down to is, is like when the leadership has actually done product, right? Or has done those types of things in these organizations too. Because like you mentioned, if you you haven't really seen it before, or you don't have that successful part in there, it's hard to grow it. It's hard to see what you're actually capable of. Oh, it is really hard. And this this is interesting that, so I have noticed people who have only worked in these kind of, so someone come to me and say, John, I've worked at three jobs. None of them are like I read that it should be. There has to be a better way. But because they felt the pain firsthand, they can almost like impute in their head the potential of things being better. Now, I think that happens a lot with like makers and systems thinkers and people who've been working with the stuff with their hands. And in that sense, it's like, even though they haven't done it, they can imagine that there would be a better way to do it. So the analogy that I use is, I'm not like a great traveler, for example, but if I'm sitting in an airport and it feels like I can't get anywhere in that city, I'm sure that like, okay, this is a major metropolitan area. I am sure there is a super fast way to get around here. I've never been to this town before, <laughs> but I have some you know knowledge of what it could look like. I'm going to invest some time in figuring out how to get around the city to do it. Now, but I think your point though, is that a lot of these organizations, you have people at the director, VP and above level in the business, the GMs of the business. And maybe they had an experience in some sort of building a software like 15, 20 years ago, but they have not worked on a team in sort of modern ways of working. And even if they, for sure, they can intellectualize it. If you walk into a meeting and say, do you think that you could, should experiment? Yes, by all means. Do you think you should empower people? Yes, I try to empower people every day. Do you think that you should fund efforts based on like the progress of that? Yes, like that makes absolute sense, but they haven't felt it in their bones. <laughs> And so I think that that's like what we'll see in the next 15, 20 years 
is as more people in these larger enterprises actually go from the IT org and then become the GMs of the other business units, where the ability to know about creating digital experiences becomes part and parcel at the top with whatever domain expertise you have to get the job in the business. Like if you haven't done a digital product experience, you can't get that job as a GM of footwear X or something. I think that's what we're going to see in these coming decades of doing it. But yeah, we underestimate how important it is to feel it in your bones. I would say back to the change agents who are like, my company sucks. We just aren't empowered and we don't do design sprints and we don't do all the things I've read about. They're also a little naive. <laughs> like you can sometimes get caught. I always say like lead with the why, not the way. And one thing I've noticed is that those like internal change agents who want to uplevel their career and uplevel their orgs, they often just cite all the techniques and tools you should use instead of yes. saying, look, in three to five years, we're going to have a really tough time hitting any of our projections and margins unless we can figure out how to deal with this new persona. And product and design thinking have a really good set of tools to grapple with a new persona and translate that better experiences. Oh, and one technique to do that is X. So they just start with the, why don't we do X, which is a really funny. So anyway, there's enough for everyone to learn there. Yeah. And I completely agree. You see a lot of people who haven't done product before completely gravitate towards the frameworks and the tools. And I think they're missing the strategy piece to me. And I wonder if you've seen this too. It It was so hard for me to try to comprehend this. And I think I'm still wrestling with how to explain this in my head. I don't honestly know how to do it. But one of the the issues I have with people who don't get product or get product strategy is their inability to recognize product patterns and see how technology can like, like the way that you change technology and the architecture you build things on can completely change your product. I'll give you an example. I was working with a bank and there was this team that basically provided internal tools to the rest of the company. And it was to do like basically the accounting that went across the rest of it. It was internal. Now I looked at that company, like that business line that was managed by like, you know, a whole group of people and it was huge and had thousands of people. And I said, you are the finance platform that the rest of the bank runs on. Like, that's what you should build. Like you need to build a platform that can manage the data from many different business lines coming in here. You have applications on top of it, which are the tools that people build and like blank faces across the entire leadership team. That was the product team. They were like, what do you mean a platform? I was like, that's what you are. Like to me, like I looked at it and I was like, that's what you are. Let's talk about product strategy. Like, how do you get into that? And it's just like, they couldn't comprehend that it wasn't just building a huge subset of a bunch of different tools. It was like, rethinking the way they were as a product, like a software product to the rest of the company. And that platform approach just never even crossed their minds. And it's that type of thing, like that recognizing of the products, the different patterns, the ways things are built, how you use APIs, how like how all these things kind of come together to deliver value and how like you can take, I tell this to companies all the time. I'm like, I work with healthcare companies that are like, oh, well, if somebody hasn't been in healthcare, I don't want to talk to them. And healthcare is very complicated, but I'm like, you can take the strategy of a different SaaS company from the product architecture and how they deliver value and use the things that work in your company too, but you just refine it. And it's those types of things that I feel like are missing. Oh, it's such an interesting thing because I think it also relates to 
I said the other day is like, I know what to Google in the sense that like, I have a pretty good sense now of what I don't know, you know? And then I think I also have a sense of like how to look for patterns for people who figured this out and be able to cut through the noise, you know, like that doesn't seem coherent. Oh, that starts to seem more coherent. And so I think what we're talking about a lot is tacit knowledge. And I think that, I mean, you're teaching a class right now and I do think some of this is teachable, but the question is how to get this, enough of the signals for people to start getting the patterns that they're doing. I did a really interesting exercise with someone named Cedric Chin, and he kind of did an analysis of my tacit knowledge and wrote a whole blog post. And you threw a technique called, it's called like task analysis or cognitive task analysis. Now, what was really funny is what I thought I was doing, I was not doing. Like my pattern matching across companies was pretty weird. And he picked up on that right away to do it. And he explained it like this, you know, for example, the military, there are people in the military who know how to find IEDs along roads. And so doing tacit task analysis, they figured out what were the patterns that person did. And they have to be able to think like an insurgent They have so much feedback loops of seeing this happen. They've also been someone who's found IEDs, so they pick up on all the signals. And so anyway, roundabout story is I think that people who've been doing product for a while, they might actually underappreciate how many signals we've accumulated over the decades to do it. And then when we're chatting with people who haven't had those signals, it can seem really frustrating. And then we can seem like, well, I just knew that. I mean, everyone knows what a platform is to do it. So I have to really temper that in when I'm talking to teams about respecting how many of those signals I've seen. Like there's not many people in the world. I realize who chatted with, say if it's two a day and 90 business, I don't know, 150 people in the last couple of weeks in different companies. And so I underappreciate that. So I think that, I don't know if that helps with what you're thinking, but I have to like, it really is important to step back and think about how we know what we know when we're trying to teach people this stuff. So yeah, yeah. this is more about the teaching angle. I don't know if this is, yeah. What do you teach your students at Harvard? So that's yeah, I think there's two sides. Like I feel like when I first started consulting, I was super zoned in on the process, right? Like how to do the agile process, how to be iterative, how to like what is the process for strategy deployment? All that stuff, right? I was like process, process, process oriented person. And as I gotten into more literally like designing the strategies of companies and helping with that, which I love, that's where I started to look at like, oh yeah, I've seen a million of these companies out here. Like you have too. I recognize patterns of like what works and what doesn't and put that in there. But I'm starting to realize that that's a big gap that we don't really talk about Yeah. And I think that, you know, you mentioned if I'm thinking about like an MBA program, for example, so how do they teach MBA programs? It's just with a lot of case studies and they work through them. This is the fascinating thing about product. Okay. So maybe you could say like, what was the differentiator or you could apply those things, but you were talking about like how to think through meeting with 16 cross-functional stakeholders in the big mess of some large organizational thing. That's actually a pretty hard thing to simulate as you do that. And so we've learned that actually at Amplitude, there's a company called Go Practice with Sean Ellis and his partner. And I'm like blanking on his name at the moment, but he's a data scientist from Google or Facebook. And together they have a site called Go Practice, which does take a cohort-based approach to teaching Amplitude. They're doing a really, really good job 
because Sean is able to like make it really feel like you're working at a growth, like on a growth team. And so they set up scenarios. And then because of the founder's background in creating realistic data, it really feels real. So it feels like that. I mean, yeah, we could talk forever about like cohort-based courses and all those things. But I think that the higher level thing talking to teams is just being appreciative of how much practice it does take. And then how really having seen things play out becomes a large part of our belief system. I noticed this a lot about diehard agilists or whatever, where they're like, oh, you just don't need this. You just don't need that. Or you don't need that. Totally oblivious to all the experiences they've had in their life that suggests level of confidence or it's possible. It's actually almost sounds like they're being jerks you know, when they're telling people to work that way or not work that way. So I don't know, we have to appreciate our like collective signal gathering (laughs) is what I learned basically. Yeah. And I wonder though, like if there's a way to distill that into teaching people about those patterns and signals, I don't know, that's what I've been wrestling with in my head. As a teacher. Yeah. yeah, yeah, As a teacher, I'm like, did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. So my course at HBS used to be purely uh, practical where everybody worked on their startups. And this year I started introducing cases and I like it. Like it's, I've only been a couple of weeks into teaching them, but it's nice because, you know, some of them are successes and some of them are failures and you read about these stories and they're very realistic and you're right. Like I can tell somebody about, you know, managing a million different difficult stakeholders, but it's different if it's like, here's the scenario, what would you do? And they actually have to think through it. And I'm really enjoying the case teaching for that because I go into the class and I never know what to expect. Like the answers I get, because everybody has a different background too. Like every answer I'm like, oh, well, okay. It just threw out my plan, (laughs) like right out the window. Let's go in this direction instead, which is very new for me, but super fun, super fun. But I think there's something there of like, what is these core strategies? Like, where do we get to? And I, 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 and bringing this back to like kind of what we were talking about earlier, I feel like that's the piece that's missing in the middle leadership when we talk about transformations. Right. And that's why I'm like, please hire somebody who's seen this before, who's done this before, because <laughs> they're going to be like, oh, boom, 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 right? Yeah. They do try to hire those people and then those people leave sometimes. But I think it's also about being realistic. And this is another thing that I see with particular teams. So guns blazing. Okay. We got through the agile transformation. We got through the DevOps transformation. Okay. Now we're going to do projects to products. And this is funny because what I'm saying right now will make no sense to the Silicon Valley crowd that I talk to a lot. Like, so I've just talked about this whole alternate universe where literally you have to think about the shift from projects to products. So yes, this universe exists that I'm talking about, but you go in this organization, they've got the OKR coaches, they're doing all these things. And then I mentioned this earlier today to someone, I worked at a really healthy company here in Santa Barbara. And if we had a new UCSB grad from the comp sci department join our company, I'd say it probably took about two years to get that person as like an engineer, as a participant on the team to the point where their confidence was at that point. Now, we were shipping super frequently. 
We were going and camping out with customers at their house and at their business. It was very healthy environment. And so it really forces you to think about, I think that some of these companies are jumping the gun. You know, they're jumping into OKRs because someone says, well, we need to be outcome driven or whatever. The teams have never even done a small two-week effort where they instrumented a form and found out how many people weren't able to successfully complete the form. The team has never seen that. And then they're jumping into these very like elaborate schemes for strategy deployment and elaborate ways of doing it. And so I think at least for that group, being much more realistic, the way I say it to people is what would you need to observe or what have I observed that built that confidence that something like that was possible? So I don't know if that resonates with you, but I think so even in the case of Harvard Business School, I mean, forcing someone to ship something in a week that no one uses is even just that, like, oh, I'm just going to release a demo to my friends. It's going to be amazing. I'll have a couple hundred users. Even something simple like that is like, no. Without hassling my friends, my friends didn't really like it. I mean, I do that a lot, even with little mini projects. Like I did a site called teamprompts.com and I thought, oh my God, my prompts are so great. People are going to keep going to team prompts. No one goes to team prompts. Like no one likes team prompts. It's boring. It didn't like fill a need to do it. So I really feel that product people need to like force those realizations as they do it. And sometimes it's just the simplest thing. Like they're talking about doing multivariate experiments and A-B tests and trying to do missions and doing whatever. And I ask, have you ever shipped something into production and just watched how many people use it? And they're like, oh, no, no. No, I haven't done that. So like, maybe start with that. (laughs) Yeah, it is amazing. Like I'm watching a bunch of people who've never done product before. And there's a lot of startups at HBS, which is really cool. And some of them make it really big, which is fun to watch. But they're all kind of incubating it. And I'm like, just ship it. (laughs) You know, like you've been working on this thing for a long time. Put it in front of somebody. If I don't know if it's ready yet, I'm like, just do it. Put it in front of somebody. Just one person, two people. You're going to get feedback. And I think. Those first steps, like you're talking about, are super important with product teams too. Like you're basically talking about they're trying to run before they can walk. If you had to like codify, what do teams need to do before they're ready to move on to strategy, before they're ready to move on to like the higher level stuff, what would it be? Yeah, I can give an example and then we could try to extrapolate from that what that is. But I think that, first of all, a lot of product examples and product curriculums use like greenfield products. That's not what most people will enter their job for. You'll start a job. Someone will say, you're the PM of this. And it starts something as simple as like, what is a hypothesis or a small change? Who's the human being you think it will help? Can you get in touch with that human being? Ideally on the phone or on Zoom, you have an experiment that you think you need to run. What's the baseline behavior? What do you think might happen? Forget A-B testing or whatever. You can just do a simple linear regression. Like you don't need to worry about it. And then just getting that muscle of what's the baseline behavior? Who in the world am I trying to keep help? What promise am I making to them as they're my customer? What's going on with my product right now? And what's one small change that I can think about? And then most importantly, what can I recap that? Four weeks ago, we were kind of in this problem situation. I had a hypothesis that this was going to happen. And so maybe not even getting into the deepest parts of product strategy yet, but just building the muscle to improve something very incrementally and just run that, even if it's a very small change to do that. And then I think from there, you start layering on complexities and uncertainties. 
I do a thing in my workshops where I say, who on the call wants to take ownership for earning the company $10 million a year? And usually people are like, what did you say? And then there are a couple of people like a VP or director or something. It's like, I'd actually be really excited by that. And I kind of go down the list. It's like, well, who might want to take on the challenge of like deeply understanding a persona and trying to figure out new and interesting ways to make that person's life easier, job easier, more hands. Okay. Does anyone want to be given a spec where you mentioned three pixel button radius? No one's hand goes up. So I have this system called mandate levels that I've written about, but the problem I was trying to solve with mandate levels is people talk in a very like hand wavy way about the sort of boundaries for the problem. Give us problems, we'll solve them, or don't tell us what to do or empower the team. So what I did with the mandate levels things is, I think it's like A through I levels. So A is build exactly this to a predetermined spec. B is do something that does this. C is allow a customer to achieve this goal. D kind of moves it up in terms of, and I is generate the company with a multi-year business goal, like dollars or whatever. So that's been one helpful technique. And you know, we could share links to some posts that I've written about that, but I found that to be helpful for thinking about how to get that team kind of working on one level and then expanding out. You need a safe environment to do that though. I think that, like I said, even in a very healthy environment, you will still need to learn. So if you make the surrounding environment great, you put all the motivation in place, all the incentives in place, then it's a more pure learning journey (laughs) that doesn't have all that stuff weighing the team down. Even then it takes reps to get through it. So yeah, I always tell people, get your reps because the people in the big enterprises, when their careers get a little bogged down because they say, oh, I worked at this big enterprise. I can't put anything on my resume because we didn't really ship anything in two years. Meanwhile, there's a 24-year-old who's never worked on a product team, but has none of that baggage. And you're a hiring manager at these companies that you want to work at. And I've spoken with these people and it's a little unnerving, but it kind of makes sense, but doesn't at the same time. They're like, okay, there's this person who has no baggage about working in a big enterprise. And I can't really make out what they were doing in the two years they spent at Big Co. They're new at this. Or there's that there's the Big Co product manager and I'm, I want to help them out, but I can't they haven't really listed an outcome to what they're doing. So the, the, what I tell people in big enterprises is, look, not everyone can just flip around jobs and everyone starts where they start. And certainly I've been really privileged as like a white guy to like work in certain places. You got to create the environment, even in big code, to carve out some boundary that you can start getting the muscle going and get an outcome going and get something going. So I know we got into like career advice, but I'm thinking that part of your career choices need to be about getting the reps. Because if you don't, then that 24-year-old who spent half of the summer working in a consulting firm who's never done product, but it's kind of fresh without the baggage, actually does look better on paper. It's really unnerving, but it's true. (laughs) So I think that this is related to our careers about how we have to build reps no matter what environment we're in. Even if you need to ship a product outside of work, you work in some place that only ships every six months, release a product outside of work to get reps, get your reps over and over. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's great advice. Like my students are getting ready this year to graduate and go find jobs. And a lot of them are like, how do I know what's the right company to go to? And they all want to work in a more fast paced place. And I said, there are big enterprises where there are teams that do amazing things and they work Pockets of team. Yeah, definitely. And then there are teams that just don't. And I said, you should ask them to me, like, 
the thing that I would ask them is how often do you actually ship code to customers? Like, because yeah. you may find a pocket of a bank that does it every single day. You may find a different pocket that does it once a year. That's a great and, one. <laughs> yeah. Or if, you know, you ask, you're interviewing your interviewer and you're like, Hey, could you just walk me through the kind of the product bets for the last 12 months? Now, if they're like, well, we were mostly focusing on the new onboarding experience for the thing. You're like, I don't know. That sounds like 12 months. That's for 12 months. That sounds like a lot. But if they can't remember, that's a good sign too. Because that would mean that there's so many of them that they just can't like remember to do those things. Yeah. I think what we're zeroing in on though, is the thing of like in these environments where there's a lot of tacit knowledge, there are some things that we can teach and bootstrap people, but how do you create the abilities to practice? I mean, I think I was reading a book this morning, which is sort of You could think of our gaps as either, this is probably familiar to people in education, but they're either, you know, knowledge skills, which are knowledge times practice equals skills, or the gaps could be one related to motivation, habits, or the environment. So the environment are like incentives, tools, et cetera. Habits are things you need to learn, unlearn. Motivation could be like, are you bought into the journey of what you're doing? And so the author of this was basically like, the knowledge and skills are only ever 20% of the puzzle. The habit stuff or the ability to practice and the ability to get your reps and like do that is one of the large parts about gaining the skills we need as product folks. So I think that that's like a super important part of learning. And that's what we do with the workshops. Like a lot of the workshops, I only have them for like two or three hours or four hours. And so it's some big company. But even through that, I don't worry about like, did we come up with our North Star by the end of the workshop? I'm there to get them reps. So anytime I can get them to go to a breakout and like talk about the items or anytime I can get them having their assumptions tested with other people, that's even in the four hours, I just look for reps over and over and over again to learn these things. Yeah. I think that like one of the things you just mentioned too, about getting the reps in an organization, we have to create like a safe space to do that. I find this trend with people who have been in large organizations for a while where the managers tell them, this is a safe space. I want you to experiment. I want you to do things, but they're afraid to, which makes me go, okay, so they may be saying it's a safe space, but it's not a safe space. Oh, that's interesting. I think it goes back to the, has the person done it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have like a digital product first product manager who, you know, got to a VP at those companies and then was really curious about a like mission-based company that was not a digitally first company. And a lot of people, you know, we make stereotypes for people. A lot of people get success doing digital product first companies and then want to change the world or want to change healthcare or want to love a certain shoe company or love Disney or love something like that. Right. So they pivot into those worlds. And I think that, so sometimes they have done it before and they just are not looking very carefully into what the incentive structures are in the organization. They're just like, well, you know, what's the worst thing could happen? Well, frankly, maybe they have a lot of job mobility. So the worst thing that happens to them is they just find another job at a big company, (laughs) but maybe in, in that environment, it really is, you know, the person's like, well, I've observed what happens when we experiment and it's not quite what you're making it out to be. Or, you know, I used the example the other day that, you know, the developer who it's like, you talked about experimentation and we did that for a couple of weeks. And then the VP just came in at the end and told us what to do. So if you've been in an environment where that tends to happen, even if that person has the background in these companies and says, 
I want to empower you to do it. It's only of a couple set of things. Either they are truly scared in terms of those mandate levels, like they've never taken on a DE or F level effort that was more open-ended, or they've seen what happens to prior people who do that. Or for example, in the case of engineering orgs, it's always a classic question I get is, John, I want to engage the engineers more on my team. They don't seem interested. And I'll say, well, how are they incentivized? Oh, our engineering org incentivizes people to finish projects. Oh, so you're asking them to do the work that you want outside of their normal business as usual. Well, yes, shouldn't they want to because they should want to be like good product people? Well, no, we only have 40 hours in the week. And have you ever been an engineer? And like, literally, if you make a mistake, you can bring the whole system down and people are barking at you. Where are your JIRA tickets, product manager? Oh, I just write them. No, but you're writing these, like, can you imagine what your day would be like with a big line of JIRA tickets and everyone scrutinizing your work and having to do code reviews every couple hours and breaking systems and then having to re-roll machines and that taking 24 hours? That's a hard job. So I think one thing that happens too is sometimes product people are like, I'm empowering the team, but they're not really being sensitive or empathetic to what the incentives and what the day-to-day are like for that. So. And that's where as a PM, how you, whatever, use the word shape or decompose or scope the mission is so important because if you just slight differences in how you frame a mission could leave enough air and space for people to take risks versus if you kind of go in slightly different direction, it could be more prescriptive. So I don't know. Those are some thoughts related to what you asked, but yeah. The previous episode to this product thinking podcast will be with Kent Beck. And Kent, I just talked to like the other day while we recorded this, but everybody will have listened to this two weeks before they listen to you. And (laughs) that is what he was saying about the adoption of XP and Agile too from places he's been in coaching is just the incentives are not aligned for people to operate that way. Oh, it's big in debate. I mean, people from Google will say, yeah, we do promotion driven development. And that's what they do. You know, and it's like, (laughs) You know, because they're trying to, what is it optimized for? It's actually optimized for keeping those engineers interested, not necessarily for achieving some outcome in the world. And maybe that works for Google. And maybe by having those people interested, it lets them do what they need to do as a particular company. But yeah, people vastly underestimate the incentive structures among engineers. You know, I've had an engineering manager say to me, we'll never pair here. Why? I won't be able to tell who contributed what if they pair. Why do you need to tell who contributed what? Well, I'm on the hook to do performance reviews and I need to be able to decouple that person's work from the other person's work to do it. So yeah, they'll have heard the other episode. And so then we'll have some common themes here, but it's certainly a big topic, I think. And it's interesting too, right? Like Kent and John don't talk all the time. And it's these patterns that you see though, when you work with teams and that was what Kent was doing for a long time too, is what we're talking about here. We're talking about a lot of the product patterns that make people successful, but There's this underlying theme of incentives, I think, that we've all observed as well that are the big blockers for people being able to adopt what we teach. Like everybody pays lip service to wanting to have a functional product organization and, you know, produce customer outcomes. But like, what are you doing to really enable that besides just putting somebody in a training program? Oh, you know, what comes to mind there too is one thing about, I used to be one of those people who, you know, when someone said, well, at the end of the day, people just want to make money. You know, and I'd be like, well, that's not true. There's other people with alternative agendas. There's all sorts of things. I was never really into the like incentives explain everything argument because I was sort of conditioned to see what that person was saying as meaning money as incentive is what drives people to do the things. 
but I have come not around to that way of thinking necessarily, but you know, I'll say, what process are you doing? They'll say X, Y, and X, Y, Z. And I say, well, show me your calendar. Okay. That's the framework you're using. Like, what does the career ladders look like? That's the framework that you're using. So people are like, I'm using agile, or I'm using scrum, or I'm using whatever method, or I'm using shape up or I'm anything that only tells you like 20% of the situation. That's why people can do 10 different ways of working and all do well. That's culturally dependent because those things really, really do matter. And so, you know, often I say to a PM, how do you turn something into a habit? And so I'm working on a book with Holly Chasen, who's sort of a design thinking person and a coach. And she said something really interesting. We were thinking about how to think about change. And our basic thing was first, you have to get clear with yourself. Then you need to connect with people in a non-judgmental way without an agenda. Then you need to connect with your organization to understand what the hell's going on <laughs> in general. And then you need to find the kernel of the opportunity. So instead of saying, I want to do design thinking, you need to say, you know, I hear the CEO talking about this big opportunity, and that's a perfect opportunity to apply these methods. And then the first thing we got back in the change is get situational awareness. So the easiest thing you can do is just sense what's going on. The next one was hack all the existing rituals. You know, so if you have a meeting that happens every two weeks, you know, often when people try to do these new efforts and product, they're like, okay, we're going to add more meetings. We're going to add more stuff. We're going to add new documents. We're going to add new rituals. And Holly made the great point that like, no, that's terrible design <laughs> of a new way of working. Like, can you slightly hack or repurpose the existing meetings? You know, if you're a PM and you do a meeting one way, can you use the last 90 seconds of that meeting to say, I'm going to do a quick review of that couple stuff we had in production right now and talk you through these things. So I think that that was an interesting idea where it's basically before you start trying to create new habits as a team, can you sort of Trojan horse your existing rituals? Because that's people's calendar, that's people's time and everything. So I think that that's like, it was a good point that she was getting at. It's hard. That's why you see VPs of product drift away for a couple of weeks at the end of the quarter to work on the new framework. It's not because they want to do it in private. It's because they're not willing to tell everyone like, okay, stop what you're doing and help me. It's really hard. Calendar-driven development and then a career ladder-driven development is what I've been thinking about today. I've got so many more terms now after this podcast to, <laughs> to throw into my uh, lexicon, which I love. Amazing. Well, it's been so good to have you on the show, John. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for sharing your patterns with us. It's been really fun to see what you've been observing and see how it lines up with what I've seen too. And if anybody wants to learn more, where can they find you? At the moment still it's Twitter. Like Twitter's become my second brain as a really tired parent. So I search to find my own stuff on Twitter because I can't remember. So that's a good place to do it. And I do a weekly newsletter. I'm on week 90. Ooh, We're getting cool. there. Yeah. Week 80 or 90 in a row. So 90 episodes of that. And that's called The Beautiful Mess. And you can just, it's on Substack and I write that. So that's a decent place to get in touch. And then, yeah, if you work at a huge company with an amazing logo name and you want to have me come and speak at your company, no one stops me at Amplitude. I can tell you that part to do it. So I'm happy to do workshops with people and, or even just do these product therapy sessions. If you just want to have talk to someone about it and I'll bring out my flywheel diagram and just bore you for 30 minutes about how you can get a virtuous loop going in your company to do it. So amazing. Yeah. That's where they can find me. And yeah, good luck with this pursuit and the teaching as well. And yeah. I do follow you. I see pictures of your housing project. <laughs> 
My and I'm just like, I'm like, she's teaching and has a housing project. And that's pretty amazing. So yeah, the center island looks beautiful. I'm going to thumbs up on that part of that room. <laughs> it's, um, I keep joking that my next book will be on managing renovations, <laughs> like a product manager. Oh, the most humbling thing for a product manager to see how much they know is to see how little they know when you put them in another type of thing. You know, it's oh, like, yeah. oh yeah, can't, can't we just iterate on this plumber? And the plumber's like, nah. You know, we're not going to be doing that right now. Like you're going to be paying me a couple thousand dollars and then I'll discover the problem and then charge you more. Anytime I like try to question what the contractor was doing, it was just like when I used to question developers, they look at me and be like, yeah, you wouldn't be able to do this yourself. It, it like, brings up that thing of like trust though. It's mm-hmm. funny, you know, I use the example, I got a mechanic here in Santa Barbara that I just dropped my car off. He has a blank check to do whatever he needs to do to the car because he's really so good about, thinking about how my economics would work. So if he sensed that I would need to buy a new car, it's like a 2003 Honda Element. He just has a good sense. And sometimes he's been like, this is borderline. We can see where it goes. And then there's other people like, I would never do that. So it is a kind of interesting question of trust. We talk about trust and autonomy in the organization that like, it's really hard unless you've seen these things play out for that digital leader. If you've never seen a team knock it out of the park after kind of wandering around for a couple months and then really hitting a home run, it's very hard to tell them, yeah, just here's a blank check for my car. So yeah, we could talk about that another time. Yeah. Budgets and and home improvements and then trust among vendors is an interesting discussion. So cool. Yeah, this was fun. Product for that. Thanks so much. (laughs) And uh, for those of you listening, tune in next week for the next episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. We're on every Wednesday. And if you've enjoyed this, please leave us a review on whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. We'll see you next time.